Born in Warsaw, Poland, I spent the first seven years of my childhood there. Remember very clearly the day uh, my parents packed us up into a car and took us to an airport. A few hours later, we landed at JFK, New York. It turned out we had immigrated to the United States. My name is Justina Jockham. I'm the CEO of Festival City Adelaide. I say proudly that I'm the product of three generations of women who are house cleaners and housekeepers. What do you think is the recipe for happiness? Probably self-awareness. I, I find people often are, are their own greatest barriers to happiness. Can you teach someone to be self-aware? I suppose my response would be that. So, let's not keep you waiting any longer and turn through the pages of this open diary. I hope you are listening. Justina, what do we need to know about your childhood that explains who you are today? Well, let's see. I was born in Warsaw, Poland, and I spent the first seven years of my childhood there. And uh, I remember very clearly the day uh, my parents packed us up into a car and took us to an airport. And a few hours later, or what felt like days later, we landed at JFK, New York, and it turned out we had immigrated to the United States. We joined my grandmother who was, or had been in the States for, for quite some time already, uh, illegally uh, at the time. And uh, we really began the first part of our immigration story in a place called uh, Port Washington, Long Island. Um, that my parents chose very consciously because they didn't want to settle in a typical Polish immigrant community, which was more located in Brooklyn at the time, in Queens. So they decided to settle there. They really wanted to learn English, the language, um, assimilate into the culture as quickly as possible, uh, which they attempted at doing uh, to the best of their ability. Uh, and, and yeah, that was really the the most life-altering event uh, of my childhood that then shaped uh, who I am today. Um, I, I say proudly that I'm the product of three generations of women who are house cleaners and housekeepers. You know, my dad cleaned pools for, for a living despite having uh, numerous medical de degrees at first. So I am a product of that time and of that work ethic and of that immigration experience. I personally admire um, your parents for stepping outside of the comfort zone and go to an area that kind of perhaps forced them to assimilate with the society very quickly. Being from an, a migrant, like what I mean and I are migrants, um, and I can certainly see a lot of um, migrants tend to stick within their own bubble of society they've created here and rightly so too it's more comfortable but in the long term that doesn't play well for the next generations but because they don't get to see the society that they have migrated to and then the things they can learn and the things that help them take that next step forward really so i really admire that yeah i mean i admire them too uh, they were 29 at the time and had two kids already 
Uh, that's not to say they didn't find the Polish community where where they moved to, where they moved us to. Um, they they found a handful of people through uh, English courses that they were taking at the local high school, uh, and they're still friends to this day. But if, if I remember correctly, it was uh, perhaps about four to five couples um, that had similar stories and just immigrated through, you know, from various places in Poland and just happened to land in Port Washington, Long Island. And, and, and of course, my grandmother was really instrumental uh, as well in that process of connecting to the community because she was already living there and worked as a housekeeper. So kind of plugged my parents into, in, into work and into study. Uh, so they, they found their Polish community. They, they did stick together. Um, but I, I always remember them telling me that it was a very conscious decision that they didn't want to silo themselves. Do you define yourself as a migrant today? Absolutely, I, I do. I, I don't think it leaves your consciousness. It's so imprinted on my mind, that experience. And, and of course, after that really pivotal childhood experience, I then migrated back to Poland um, when I was 22, I think, and spent 10 years in, in Poland studying, living and working there. And during that time, I like to say I was on the ping pong table kind of going back between the States and Poland until I completely fell off the table and landed in Australia. And that was, you know, my kind of third um, attempt at migration. I, I, I don't get any better at it um, because there is something about the experience and the severing of contacts, the severing of ties, the, the separation and the disconnect that you feel from uh, your networks, family, friends, uh, culture, cultural references, uh, and and that kind of process of growing up or growing into a culture that you kind of miss out on because you're uh, you're maybe in it but slightly adjacent um, to it. You, you know, you're never quite right. That's a feeling I remember really imprinted on me as a seven year old, and uh, I feel like that that has really shaped who I am to this day. That kind of sense of being askew you know i have two questions first first one how are your parents today how are they yeah they're they're great um they're great it, it's is that the honest answer no that's probably not the honest answer the honest answer is that um i i think they're very lonely like i don't think they ever um really cemented relationships and um a sense of self. Uh, so while, you, you know, they're no longer housekeepers and pool boys, you, you know, they work more closely to uh, the profession that they were educated into. I, I, I don't think they uh, really embody a sense of, you know, belonging. Uh, mm. And I think, again, that's probably typical of a lot of um, families that migrate. And they are in Australia at the moment, or are they no, the no, uh, they are no longer in Port Washington, Long Island. They are now in Williston Park, Long Island. Okay. <laughs> we, we we moved when I was twelve, <laughs> and they bought their first house uh, that year, and and that's the house they still live in. Yeah. yeah. So you were appointed as a CEO of Adelaide uh, Festivals Adelaide. Mm -hmm. um, at one, at what point? did your passion for the arts start? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, my passion for the arts probably started um, 
really started to solidify in early high school. Um, my, my mom is an artist. She was trained as an arts educator. Uh, so uh, the arts were always present in my life. My dad uh, would really love to be in a rock band. And so he plays guitar and harmonica. And so um, music was always present in my life. Uh, but in high school, we had this really incredible program called Stack, uh, the Student Television Arts Company. And it was um, a high school program that took you out of uh, regular courses for about three hours of the day, which was attractive enough as it, you know, on its own. <laughs> Be because, it, 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 you know, I was actively told never to pursue math ever. And, and in fact, just to stop any attempt at math. And so I did and just went straight into the arts. And with Stack, um, we could uh, uh, train in a specific area of the arts. So whether it was film, music, voice, um, writing, uh, visual arts, theater, uh, or, or something else. Maybe there were seven or six categories. Uh, I got into the program by application through um, the visual arts category and really cemented my love for, uh, for, for, for that. And um, yeah, spent, spent a few years in that program. At the time, New York City was running this excellent initiative called High Five, where uh, young people who were under the age of 18 could um, access brilliant shows and live performance for five bucks. Um, and so I was constantly involved and engaged and, and, you know, taking the subway to New York City to see something on Broadway or at the Met or at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. So it was um, quite a quite a magical time and and really um, democratizing initiative. Uh, so that's how my love for the arts started. But I never thought I would land in a career related to it. So my my professional ambition was somewhere else entirely at the time. So what is the role you think um, the arts play within our society? I reflect on that question a lot, and it comes down to three words for me. It's about community, communion, and the communal. So it's about community, experiencing commun communion through a communal experience. And, and, and I think that's, that's the role that it plays. It reminds us that we are the sum of our parts. It, it, it is, you know, we're all individuals, but we have something greater that we are participating in, which is community. We, we experience communion through this shared experience, you, you know, through this shared story or, or film or theater or whatever it is that we are engaging in. And that is, that is communal. That is, that is the definition of communal, you know. And, and I think it's a, it's a reminder of that fact. It's a reminder of, of um, how to act with empathy. It's, 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 it's a radical act of uh, kind of trying to see ourselves in the bigger world and trying to understand the bigger world through storytelling, uh, which is essentially what the arts are, whether it's um, painted on canvas or written in a book. So that, that's what it comes down to for me, um, mm -hmm. those three words. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys have had this ever, but I will have moments reading a book and being like, is this author reading my mind? 
like that can't be an experience somebody else has had, you, you know, because whether it's something that we feel embarrassed about or ashamed about or confused about, there are times in our lives where we do not think others can be having the same experience. And then we realize others are having similar experiences to us. And that sense of connection and understanding, I think, is is really beautiful. And, and the arts can deliver that um, to us. Uh, plus, you know, it's it's one of the most democratic forms of engagement, the arts. Mm. It, you know, ev- everyone engages with it, you know, whether you're a toddler or you're 98, whether you're from Iran or Poland or China or Argentina, it's, it's, um, it is, it is a common language. Couldn't agree more. I love your, um, storytelling and it's like the story you tell yourself about yourself, but from the lens of the author, you said, you know, you could see it like in a book or in a canvas, but then there's the story that you tell yourself every day about yourself, but Mm. then you read that story or a similar story in a book, and you go, is my story real? You do have that moment. It, it, is this real? Like, is this person sitting in my brain? Like, um, it, because uh, uh, some of the things we carry in ourselves we feel to be very personal, we might not even share with others, but I think that's the beauty and the power of the arts is that they ex- it, it excavates these things from uh, the human experience and, and translates it through the medium of the art that, the author or the painter or the director is using and and that's really special. I had a question that just popped into my head. Uh, you mentioned that you are a quiet person. You enjoy your night in instead of night out more. But you also are the CEO of Festival Adelaide, which is very It's a conundrum. Yes. Yeah. How do you balance that? How do I balance that? Look, I think it comes down to really knowing yourself and mm. in in some ways I, I am in the perfect role in the festival sector because what I do really focuses on research, on data, on advocacy, on reporting and evaluation. Um, I enjoy being a vehicle for improving the environment and making it more conducive for festivals to thrive. But I'm not the one who is putting on the festivals. You know, you know what I mean? So I, I feel like I found a niche in the you know, a kink in the system, so to speak, because because it's a niche that is perfectly suited to the type of person I am and where my strengths lie. So, uh, and I do think that that might also be a misconception about the arts that you do have to be uh, the person who's ready to take center stage, where where there are really diverse roles that people can play mm-hmm. uh, in the arts ecology, and we just have to find our we just have to find our place. You were appointed at a very interesting time. I was. February 2020. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that experience. It was incredibly difficult because yeah. um, I had just gone through, you know, I came to Australia and to Adelaide thinking that it will be a temporary short kind of term stay. And at some point I decided I really want to stay here for a long time. And I had just gone through a really difficult period of trying to figure out how to stay and how to successfully migrate here and get the right visa. And and it was a really tumultuous, really difficult year. And I got the Festivals Adelaide job mid-January. 
I didn't even have the right visa to work here, but I just kind of accepted the role without, don't tell anybody, <laughs> kind of accepted the role thinking this, this will all just like land into place. And, and it did. Five, five days later, I got the notice that I'm a legal alien. Um, You're what, sir? A legal <laughs> alien. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? I love that. You know, uh, I'm so stealing that. Well, no, no, no. Those aren't my words. Who, who, who sang that? A uh, sting, didn't it? Um, Englishman in New York. No, I would sing it for you, but I'm sure all, your entire podcast audience would just <laughs> switch off the <laughs> recording straight away. <laughs> L- look it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Englishman in New York. Okay. Um, and so I started the role, I distinctly remember February 3rd, and, and then of course March 15th came the first kind of announcements that things will be uh, closing closing down, um, shuttering, you, you know, to, to ensure that we're all kept safe. And that experience was already difficult because I was really looking forward to integrating with the sector, uh, kind of getting out there. Um, uh, meeting people after this really lonely year of trying to just stay in Adelaide, uh, then to kind of be disconnected from 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 everyone uh, was was incredibly challenging. And of course, a major part of my role is advocacy on behalf of the sector, and it was really difficult to uh, make contact, uh, connect with people, explain why the sector needs this support, that support, and. Um, make headway, you, you know, during one of the most critical periods in the history of festivals and events. <laughs> so the the pressure and the um, kind of sense of obligation and responsibility kind of weighed very heavily on me, and and yet the environment was really difficult to work in. So it, I, I say that with, you, you know, still immense awareness that I I did not suffered the consequences of COVID like many artists and arts companies and organizations and festivals and events did, uh, you know, some of which are no longer working in the sector or, or just permanently closed for business. So um, it, it was incredibly tragic uh, time for the arts. Yeah, um, you, I think you like one of the sectors that were hit the hardest. Absolutely. If it certainly hit first and, and hit, mm. hit the hardest. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. Going back to COVID, how did, how did COVID change the way you and your team work now? Um, you, you know, when COVID, COVID hit, we, we, what we realized really quickly was that we were being called upon to tell different stories about the arts that we were not prepared to tell. And so we realized really quickly that we had a very limited toolkit. Um, so for the past decade, probably longer, uh, the arts have been kind of justifying their existence using economic measures. And as a result of that, and kind of the need to tell that story, um, it didn't develop the tool of telling the story about its impact in the area of well-being or community or education or social cohesion or, you know, health, other, other areas and policy domains that the arts really touch upon. 
Um, so how did COVID change the way we work? Um, it really made us hyper aware of the fact that we can't just have a hammer in our toolkit. We actually have to have everything, all the nuts and bolts. Um, and we have to be looking after that as much as possible um, so that in the immediate, medium and long term, we, we have the right levers to pull when we're called upon to tell diverse stories about the ways in which the arts matter in our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and so that we can kind of transition from trying to justify why the arts should get funding or something like that to an understanding of its intrinsic value in our, in our lives. Just, just really curious because you hear this quite a bit from different people, especially artists, I think. This whole idea of, you know, in many places around the world, you have to rely on government funding and whatnot. And now you're kind of touching on the storytelling aspect like about us. Like you're always telling the story using numbers and economic measures, but actually that's not really like a full picture of the story. Yeah. Um, what happened, I think, historically or even the last 10 years leading up to COVID that we kind of got stuck with this approach, with how we actually appreciate and why there are a lot of people, why like, do you think we have to over-justify the existence of the arts industry? Because I hear that from a lot of people, um, whether you're in film, whether you're in <laughs> like writing and whatnot, um, saying that dancing, and it's, it's always almost been the case. Why do you think that's the, because individual people do appreciate it? I think they do. I, you know, it's it's not so much a reliance on government funding. I guess I would flip that and say, okay. it it it's core to public policy. So government funding flows from that. Mm-hmm. So it's it, so for example, in, in in Poland and you know, kind of professionally, I know the environment well. Um, public policy is is the arts. So. It is centrally funded through the government. It, it's not, you know, one could argue that there's an over-reliance on government funding in that case, but, it, you know, kind of the ethic or, or the kind of morale around that decision is um, this is central to public life. This is central to civic life. Therefore, government should take the responsibility public well-being. of funding. Um so, so I think that's that. That's the nuance I would pick up on there. Um, I think other places, you, you know, there's different kind of historical traditions. Like in, in the states, on the other hand, um, commercial arts is something that flourishes much more. There's, you know, very long and comprehensive history of of philanthropy and donorship. You know, the Carnegies and um, and the Rockefellers, all of that stuff. So, th- that more private giving funding model is a lot more prevalent, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and government has taken a backseat um, as, as, as a result. In Australia, there's, there's this funny thing happening in the middle mm. um, that I can't quite put my finger on. But I, I can only hope that we don't lose the arts as central to our public and civic life and therefore intrinsically funded through government. Have justify it. Rather than having to justify it, because it, um, yeah, it's 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 kind of like sport, right? Like you practice sport in school. Maybe you play basketball. Maybe you play football. Maybe you play soccer. You don't necessarily expect through doing that to end up being, you know, the next great NFL player, 
at the Super Bowl. Like you might, you might, you know, as a kid have those ambitions, but you know, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Uh, but similarly, we don't have that approach to to the arts. You, you know, it's it's just like you, you can practice arts and engage in arts and not expect to be the next great thing on Broadway. You can, you know, but it's just integral to our lives. Sport. We we understand that it's core to our well being, uh, both mental and 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 physical. And and I don't think we've reached that uh, place yet with the arts. So in your opinion, what do you think is the recipe for happiness? Probably self-awareness. I, I find we people often are are their own greatest barriers to happiness. You know, whether they're overanalyzing something or worried about something, or you know, kind of getting in their own way. Um, having having self-awareness about one's own behaviors and actions and emotions and that of others, I think, is is really helpful in clearing through the fog of of negative emotion and it, it helps you, you know kind of realize what you need to take responsibility for and what other people need to take responsibility for and then I think you know that sense of clarity is ultimately a sense of happiness. Do you consider yourself a happy person? Uh, most days. <laughs> I mean there are days that are overwhelming and um, there are days that are um, very foggy, you know, from uh, from that kind of uh, emotional perspective. But I, I like to think that um, there are more days when I take deep breaths and kind of feel clarity, which I equate with happiness uh, than than others. So, yeah, I, I would consider myself a happy person. Can you teach someone to be self-aware? Or is it just some of experiences that you can reflect upon and therefore become self-aware? I suppose my response would be that I, I, I do think everyone is self-aware to the point, to a point. It's, it's just a matter, I don't, I, I think everyone experiences that flicker of self-awareness. And it's just a matter of, do you listen to that flicker? Do you notice that flicker and um, illuminate then the whole? Or do you kind of retreat and just say, no, no, I don't want to know where that flicker leads to and what that flicker illuminates if I pay attention to it um, and I'll just retract retreat but I, I do think everyone experiences that flicker and it's just a matter of practicing that muscle of um, okay let me see what this is pointing to let me see what is this is trying to demonstrate to me and I think over time we develop a bit of a curiosity you know if we're experiencing you know a difficult situation or, or a difficult person or just some something difficult that is causing us distress. If we have a moment in which we think, oh, maybe I can react to this differently, um, we either pursue that further and follow that lead, or or, or we don't. You, you know, and um, I just think it's a matter of practice. I, I either you build that self awareness muscle or you don't. Mm. But it's not that it's not that some have it and some don't. It's it's. I think just like a matter of training, like either you will have strong biceps or you won't, but you just have to train it. Now, present in the short term, in the long term, what is there something that excites you? I'm really excited about the world opening up again and kind of seeing how we're going to translate the lessons that we learned over the past three years into our present day. Um, you know, I feel like we've really stretched 
the rubber band, you know, and kind of expanded our thinking about certain things. And I'm, and I'm curious and I'm excited to see whether we've stretched it so far that it has to stay that way or will it just snap back to what it was. Um, I, I, think, I, I think things have changed too much for them to snap back to what they were. So I'm excited to see kind of how lots of things evolve, uh, our understanding around, you know, uh, family and uh, social connection and climate change and health and well-being and how we are all connected, <laughs> you know, um, and how a disease in one place can influence the entire world. You know, it's, it's, it's quite astounding and kind of, you know, speaks to our interconnectivity. And I'm just excited to see how we're going to take those lessons and apply them to our lives in the long term. In the short term, I'm very excited for the Adelaide Film Festival. What are Stina's fears? I, I fear incompetence. Um, I fear um, not having the ability to ask for help. Uh, that applies to me personally, but also the world <laughs> at large. Um, yeah, I, I fear our collective insecurities getting the best of us and, um, yeah, not, kind of us stepping away, taking a large step away from community. That's my fear as well. Just not prioritizing community enough. Um, so yeah, it's just a spectrum of fears. I think that's the conundrum with happiness that a lot of people deal with. People think when you reach this happy state, everything's going to be good and you're always happy. But from my limited experience, that's never going to be the case. There are going to be moments that, that you won't feel happy. You will feel yeah. sad. And you said we have those foggy days. Yeah. But I think um, the goal is to get yourself to a place, maybe we can call it resilience, that you have enough in your toolbox that you can use on those, on those foggy days and unhappy days that can bring you back. Yeah, I, I think my measure is always just how, how long, how much time am I spending in those foggy days? Hmm. Is the time getting shorter or is it getting longer? And, you know, I kind of measure my progress as a person um, based on that, that time, that space. It, you know, even if it's just like a minute shorter, that's progress. You know, hmm. it's, it's, getting, it's getting closer to that clarity faster. Um, and of course, you can apply different tools and different frameworks to, to, to do that. We all have kind of personal ways in which we, um, yeah, generate resilience within ourselves. And uh, that's what we hope to, that's what, hope, what we hope to do. But yeah, that's my measure of, of whether things are getting better or whether I'm maturing or evolving as a, as a human, um, you know, how much time I'm spending in those fogs. Let's say Justina just had a very bad day. Yeah. And she goes home. Yep. What does she do so she bounces back the, the day after? I take uh, my dog for a walk, then I take a long bath, and probably drink a bottle of wine. <laughs> and the next day, things are better. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have to, you, you do have to, um, yeah, create moments for yourself where you just take a step back. And I, I, I like to practice this thing. This is my trick it, that I'll share with you guys, as silly as it sounds. Whatever problem you have, imagine it within a picture frame, mm -hmm. right? Now, imagine that picture frame, like very on the bridge of your nose, like you're almost cross-eyed. That's how close the problem is and feels to you in this moment. And then eventually just 
try to make that picture frame sit here, you, you know, about three inches away from your face. And then another three inches, another three inches, until that picture frame just kind of disappears into the distance. So you're taking it away from that kind of immediate panic and anxiety and kind of creating distance between it and yourself so that you can actually see, oh, okay, there's that scene in that picture frame. No big deal. It's far away. And, and that's really helpful. It helps to kind of solidify <laughs> the issue. It's not amorphous anymore. It's kind of devoid of emotion because it's in a picture frame. You know, and the beauty of picture frames and the things in them is you can throw them out. So it, it's helpful to me. That little trick is helpful to me in managing stressful or discomforting situations. I like it. I really like it. I want to use that next time and I'll let you know. How it goes. <laughs> but also take a bath and, <laughs> you know, take you your dog for a walk. Absolutely. That's helpful. Uh, do you consider yourself ambitious? Very. I, I like improving things. I kind of am coming to this place in my life where I kind of feel like I have nothing to lose. And whenever I thought I had something to lose, it was all a construct anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's not go down that path. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but it's, uh, you know, I, I want to improve things. And um, uh, whenever people say to me, like, oh, it can't be done, or it's been done like this forever, I'm just like, well, but we want to move this along, right? We want to progress it. And and I'm really ambitious in that way. And, and one of my personal values is um, gumption, you, you know, like resourcefulness and, and just, you know, having the chutzpah to do something, um, that, that energy and that, that drive. So it's not ambitious for my own kind of uh, agenda. Uh, agenda, or I certainly don't want to be on a mantelpiece of any sort. And um, as we've already established, I'm not the type of person to go out and, and kind of be the center of the spotlight. But for the things I, I believe in, I'm, I'm, I'm really ambitious and I, and I just want them to be the best that they can be. What is the cost of that ambition? Uh, your sanity. Uh, no, <laughs> that, that's not true. And that, that's absolutely a joke. Um, the cost of that ambition is, um, I don't know if there's a cost. There's lots to gain, like lots, lots of learning to gain because I think something that I've struggled with is perceiving any barriers to achieving something that is better or more progressive as exactly that. I've perceived them as barriers and things that I need to overcome, you know, or something that I'm at war with or against where it's it's not really a helpful kind of uh, way of thinking. And so the the cost was always that kind of stress and anxiety and that kind of sense of being at war with something. Whereas right now I'm kind of perceiving it as, you know, a way in which I can learn to collaborate and communicate with somebody or, or something or kind of progress an idea further and kind of find out ways in which it could be benefit to, you know, of mutual benefit. And that kind of diplomacy, I think, is, is something to be gained from the challenges that arise from that particular type of ambition. Have you ever wondered why, why are you so like what, what is what is the fuel behind your ambition? Yes, I have wondered mm. that, and and there there certainly have been moments where I where I felt um, the opposite of ambition and kind of um, felt really stuck or felt really um, just just felt really uh, lost, and I. I kind of feel like now the reason behind my ambition is a desire to feel momentum, 
And that's really what it comes down to. Like I've, I've tried to, sometimes there, there were times when I explained it, you know, we immigrated to the States, everyone thought we would just be, you know, cleaning up roaches and things like that and just cleaning up after people and, uh, and all those experiences that, you, you know, certainly shape who you are. But right now I just enjoy movement I, and I enjoy momentum and I enjoy feeling that sense of momentum. And I, and I attribute that to my ambition. I just want to keep continuing to feel this way. You know, I just want to continue to feel like there's momentum in my life. And so that's right now at the center of my ambition. It's not, I suppose it's not reactive to my experiences or my upbringing or, or the experiences that I had during my upbringing. It's kind of self-generated, which feels like I have more agency and power within it. I've had moments in my life where like I couldn't open my emails and you know just the idea of even looking at my spam box was just too overwhelming because I was ambitious but I felt very insecure mm. and that gap between the two things of what I know I can achieve and my fear of achieving it or not achieving it was just too great and really painful time of uh, you feel like you're living for other people or you're, you're feeling for you know recognition you're, you're you're, you're living for others and kind of how you perceive to be judged by others. And it, th there was a turning point where I was just like, all right, but what is the feeling that I'm trying to be after and what, that I'm trying to capture? And I realized the, the more that I felt like I was in a groove, the, the more I wanted to feel that groove. And that became the motivation. Like that groove is the motivation that I'm seeking you know and it's so so it's self-generating it's it's yeah it's it's the momentum i want to feel and that's my ambition to pursue that that feeling specifically in my everyday is that momentum heading in particular direction towards a specific cause or you know like a specific goal or big goal or not necessarily i don't think necessarily i mean certainly i have you know some ideas of where I would like life to go and various ideas for projects and initiatives, but does it have to land there? Um, no, because it, it might land somewhere else and that will be um, kind of just as cool or if not cooler. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I, I know I'm passionate about the arts. I know I'm passionate about community and kind of that global connection that's created through, through, through both. And I feel like as long as I keep, working in that space I'll, I'll be able to generate momentum that's positive and that leads me to positive outcomes so we have a, a newly added tradition to the podcast okay um, so the previous guest has left you a question to answer oh lovely what is a brave decision you know you should make but you're putting off making oh okay what is the brave decision that i know i should make but i'm putting off making she did not leave an easy one for me. That's for sure. Yeah, that's it's an interesting question. It's because um, there's probably there's probably two answers to that question that um, would be the right answers, um, but that might be just a little too personal to share on a podcast. So I might just leave it there. Thank you for being here. Thank you so We much. hope this was a good use of your time. Thank you. We certainly learned a lot about you and what you stand for. 
Oh, thank you. Really appreciate that. Our stories are the building blocks of who we are, and we hope this episode was the right trigger to reflect on your stories and how they made you who you are. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on whatever platform you are hearing this from. Until the next Open Diary.